Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Tonight's program is very special. I will be joined by four noted poets who will help me continue our journey in terms of celebrating Women's History Month. These outstanding individuals are Allison Adler, Kathy Barham, Kathleen Cohen, and Christina E. Johnson. So without further ado, I give you Allison Adler. Hello, Allison. Hi, Michael. Hello. It's fantastic that you're here. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. Would you share just a little about uh, your poetry? And then I've got a couple of questions about who you are. Okay, sure thing. Um, For me, poetry, uh, the way I think about poetry is that it's uh, compressed language that has a special intensity with the intention in a very compact way, in short way, to express and convey political and personal concerns about the human condition through unique rhyme, rhythm, repetition, lineation, imagery, and musicality, with or without rhyme, that moves the reader not only towards understanding, but also towards feeling. Wow. That is very nice. What does it mean, Allison, to be a woman poet? Um, well, I come to, uh, Michael, I come to poetry through music, um, from folk rock and protest songs to blues, to writing my own songs for guitar in the late 60s and early 70s. And my role models were uh, female singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez, Joan Armour Trading, Tracy Chapman, and even now Janelle Monet. But, you know, since ancient times, women have been singing and expressing their unique point of view. Uh, like Sappho, who lived in Greece in the 5th century B.C., singing her poetry with her musical instrument, The Lyre, about love and about war in her times. Um, And Anne Carson has translated her fragments, and even though there's just little bits of them, they still remain compelling. And I'm so thrilled to be contributing in some really small way to the community of women writing. That was very nice, very, very nice. Allison, please share some of your work. I would be happy to. Thank you, Michael. I'm going to have a few uh, odes in my, uh, the group of poems that I'm going to read. So I just want you to know that an ode, in case you don't know, is a poem that celebrates or addresses a person, place, or thing. And the first poem that I'm going to read uh, is called Ode to My Pacemaker. So just to preface this, uh, when I was 40, I was diagnosed with a heart condition without any symptoms, but by 50, I needed a pacemaker, which again was replaced eight years later. Um, And when they replaced the old pacemaker, they gave it to me to keep. So I got a chance to look at it and it was nothing like what I imagined, but it made me want to write about it. 
So this is the ode that I wrote after studying it. It's called Ode to My Pacemaker. Like a crab's carapace in a polished meadow sleeps here in my palm. Invader, irritant turned friend, confidant who slept close. My heart's cruise control device pacing at a constant 60. It renders me bionic. Night watchman, lifeguard resting below my left collarbone, smaller than a child's fist, guidant, ventac, prism, 2DR. They call it battery, defibrillator, but I call you my armored knight, my extended lifeline, my 50th birthday present. And after eight steadfast years, serial number 1861, SN230922, You've been uprooted and replaced, new model planted like a bulb in the soft ground of tissue and muscle. But one year later, you're still beeping from your case on the bedroom dresser. Silverfish that scaled my arrhythmic seas, recording each ebb and skip, you're devotional. And the tattoo etched upon your mirrored skin, lightning bolt piercing a heart. My second poem um, is dedicated to my mother, Sandy Shore, who passed away in July 2020, uh, two months after her 91st birthday, falling, a portrait for my mother. Upheaval was carried on the wind. Spring's wild derecho storm threatened a patient robin who sat unblinking, unruffled, never losing her balance while warming her eggs until they were ready. My mother had a long history of falling, in love with men who disappointed her, of tumbling from toilet into marble tub, down steps as she boarded a plane while flirting with a handsome pilot, then carted off to emergency for her first head injury. Don't we all begin as hatchlings? I've watched them crane their necks, open their beaks, and that first time flutter awkwardly to the ground. As we two-legged ones stumble, we pray for the luck of a soft landing. The next to last time my mother lost her balance, reaching for the walker, my body cushioned the ground. Today, just before an oak was uprooted, did it whisper to the trees, lean a hair's breadth to the left and I'll hurt nothing as I fall? It kept its promise. No nearby kin injured. It barely kissed our roof's gutters. My third poem is about a hawk, and the hawk is my personal totem and talisman. I've had several encounters, and they've all been good close encounters. Hawk, after Mark Strand. A blizzard of ones whips the sky and circles me. We are all prey for something. It's surprising entrances, quick exits. I do not yet understand. A momentary pull to look up, catch a glimpse of its thick white breast, blaze of tail feathers. And now he, no, she's everywhere. Not just in summer, but fall, winter, Landing on a branch, roof, flagpole, dragging a small caught thing 
is a charred grass. In my full and ordinary life, I never imagined a hawk would be calling out to me. Um, My next um, poem is another ode to our dog, Tasha, after Ellen Bass's poem to her dog, Tazik. How rain clung to your black star-flecked fur and mustache around your black lip smile. Oh, shadow that followed me everywhere. Oh, devoted daughter, that white triangle patch on your chest, the beacon of light. Call you devotion, call you empath, your waving tail and watchful eyes. Knowing where to rest between us, who needed your warmth most. Early morn when nature called, staring from the foot of the bed, you wait. Oh, heart of patience, your sandy tongue licking my face. Your bean-shaped eyes look up from the last photo with knowing. Even as you laid on the cold tile, softly moaning, my hand stroking your paw, together we wait. Here's another mother poem about my mother's 90th birthday. Her entrance. Almost two years have passed since the last time I watched my mother prepare, paint her lips coral in the mirror's halo, eyelids shadowed, spritz of paloma before donning diamonds and dressy elegance. She's readying herself for the world, for all heads to turn, for approving eyes when she makes her entrance. And the restaurant will become a hushed movie set, cameras ready to follow. Beauty commands attention, claims its window seat like a throne overlooking the incrementally rising ocean. It's early bird Sunday in Florida. Families flock like gulls to toast our matriarch turning the big nine zero. Her red silk scarf trailing, her impatient brood flapping, and a chilled martini with an olive at the table waiting. Uh, the next poem is uh, set um, in my um, outside my mid-century modern glass house um, where we moved to Valley Forge Mountain in 2014. Um, and this is the joys and the sorrows of living in a house full of windows. Gray catbird at my doorstep in spring. I didn't hear a thump. I didn't feel the impending. But its gray body, long beak and tail feathers, lying on its side, one-eyed, a small, stunned thing on the flagstone, unmoving. But then it was fall, Saturday, oaks yellowing, and three purple finch sudden deaths. My glass house, its windows, no pass through, but passageway toward. Is there a god wearing a crown of feathers summoning? Um, The next poem um, is written like W.S. Merwin with no punctuation throughout. It's called Apology after W.S. Merwin. And there's one line of his in there. Thank you for my life's line long enough in early March 
still winter to look through window glass out to my garden that welcomes puffy-chested bluebirds, the clock still ticking, daylight that lasts longer, where mother-to-be inside a bird box sits with the patience of a Zen master as her devoted partner roof guards the egg-laying and labor. Thank you for time enough to offer friends on bare knees, head bowed my apology for those mistakes only I could make and for my small body bending with eyes lowered humbly. The next poem um, is, um, is after B, I wanted to talk a little bit about my, my connection with Sappho, which I mentioned in the beginning. Um, Ann Carson's translation of Sappho fragments called It's Not Winter uh, was a book I found in a used bookstore in about uh, 2013. And the emptiness and the fragments just took my breath away. And basically, I spent two years on a project of writing into the brackets, um, trying to imagine what Sappho might have been saying or thinking. This is a poem that I wrote after I actually saw a Sappho fragment in 2014 when there was a new one discovered. Um, Sappho fragments at the Morgan Library. As if having risen, risen up from the bottom of a glacier's swirling blue, now pressed between two panes of glass, floating like water lilies, motionless, the wind stilled, the pond a cradle of remnants, the past unfrozen, when something buried is raised from an ancient trash heap, words on papyrus bound and pieced together, almost but not indecipherable, and what we can't, we can imagine. Whether or not they try to silence her, 2,000 years later, I can almost hear her singing. I have two more poems. Um, the next to last poem is a sonnet. Um, this poem is... Um, Another poem about uh, a more recent heart incident last year when I had a catheter ablation. And uh, the day, April 7th, was also the same day five years ago that we lost our mentor, Kathy Kathy and I, our mentor and friend, A.B. Christie. Um, so this poem is called Reentry. It's dated April 7th for A.B. How the nurses reassured me in the cath lab just before I drifted off and again after all four chambers of my hypertrophic heart were zapped back into synchronized winging, like in a video game where the doctor in his white coat battled for hours to rewire my defective genes. Dare not ask his strategy, just accept permission to proceed. Two days later, when a litter of fox kits emerged from under the shed and scampered in the Zen garden, bedded down in the leaves, left scat under the maple and a dead mouse at the red front door. It was then my heart leaped. And this is my last poem. Uh, it's my ode for Texas. And the title is Wearing Cowboy Boots. 
Lyle Lovett and my friends from Austin. That's right, I'm not from Texas. Flat scrub, land of the Lone Star, yellow rose, and a republic's right to secede. Where steel-toed shit kickers do real men's work, not cowboy boots for urbanite feet. That's right, I'm not wearing a burnt orange jersey, white cow on a shirt's back on game day Saturday. That gentle longhorn who sailed to America with Christopher Columbus. And I did not know pointer and pinky fingers in the air waving means hook'em horns. That's right. I'm not vegan at Louis Mueller's where smoked pork meat, salted and vinegared, falls off a rib bone the way a silk dress unzips slides off a woman's shoulders. And Lyle, you're so sexy. Creased face, cockeyed smile, buzzed hair slicked back, your pitch that's perfect, humor that's wry, dirty and dry as a three olive martini. And I love when you sing as if to me, that's right, you're not from Texas. That's right, I'm not from Texas, but Texas wants me anyway. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, Allison, that was wonderful. Thank you so Thank much you, for, sharing such, <laughs> for sharing such <laughs> touching and amazing work. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk later. Thanks. All right. <laughs> now I'd like to introduce Kathy Barrow. Kathy? Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, please speak up just a little. Okay. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yes. Okay. I'd like to. Um, I'd like to. A- I'd like to ask you two questions. These are important questions in my mind. So, what is poetry? Well, um, Allison, Allison's definition, and Wallace Stevens and Archibald McLeish's Ars Politicus are above my pay grade. <laughs> so, I'll just tell you what it is to me personally. Um, a poem is a vessel for a query, a question, an investigation. It may take the form of what am I thinking and feeling right now in this moment, or why has the, excuse me, why has the image of that drowned groundhog been hounding me for a week? Um, on a good day, a poem will provide an answer, or at least an approximation. Um, a poem can also be a declaration um, of praise for someone or something that I am awed by, often something in nature. Or it can also be a rant about an injustice in the world or someone I feel has wronged me. Um, and that seems like a nice segue to talking about poetry and uh, writing as a woman. <laughs> All right. Very nice. Very nice. Tonight we're celebrating Women's History Month. What does it mean to be a woman poet? Well, um, when in my younger years, oftentimes it was a way to give voice. I have a couple of snarky poems that are about men who have dumped me. And I think partly why I wrote poems about it was a way to give voice um, because I didn't feel seen or heard or listened to. 
So the poem, um, as a woman, a poem provides a format for venting, but more dramatically, voicing that which I had refrained, refrained from saying maybe in a relationship or in any context. Um, and that's partly the generation I was um, part of. I was told if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So um, writing poetry was for me, even as a child, a way to um, push against that. Wow. That was really, really nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm learning so much tonight. All right. Please share your work. Thank you, Michael. Um, I mentioned writing snarky poems. I have two. Um, the first one is um, has Daphne in it and just a little bit of background. Daphne was a minor goddess who was associated with springs, wells, fountains, other bodies of water. And there are several myths about her, but all had Apollo lusting after her. Um, and she basically um, was running from him and in desperation appealed to her father, Peneus, a river god, to save her, at which point he turned her into a laurel tree. I'm thinking, that's the best you can do, Dad? But anyway, I digress. So the poem is Ideal Woman. Daphne. Huntress once and fleet of foot is now root. Thanks to Penny's spell, she's all true. Apollo's second fantasy. His first to have her in his bed, then as a wreath upon his head, and other victors too. Static and inanimate, she'll make a truer mate now that leaf and branch supplant a brain and feet in subterranean state remain. She'll stay more loyal as a laurel and as a she, sun, wind, or rain, her only quarrel, mute as a stone, as Apollo's tree. Um, the next poem is snarky, but not as snarky. It's called A Winter Reunion. You spoke the words slowly, voice low, slightly guttural. Your eyes sometimes turn watery and dark. We were huddled over coffees in the booth at the back of a dark cafe while January's refusals gathered outside. Instead of saying only when I'm lonely or sad or is loving you a phenomenon, I thought of San Francisco's steel rock. Last November, I scanned the bay for any sleek bobbing head to emerge or cries from their stony haven. No sign of them. Then something sudden in black, an arm perhaps, or tossing sun-washed head, flashed from a high rock, inviting me now to slide from the deep, slick feet into stupefying cold and glide beyond confusion, speech. Um, the next poem um, is appropriately, uh, no more snark, <laughs> um, as a it's basically, I'm thinking if the previous poems lament feeling unseen or muted by the men I was dating many years ago, the next poem seems like an antidote because the moon is the speaker and she's feisty. Um, I wrote this poem following a blood moon, which is a full moon that coincides with a full lunar eclipse that has an unusually reddish appearance which is caused by the diffusion of the sun's light into the shadow cast by the earth, which is a, the dictionary definition I had to look up to write the poem. I was initially attracted 
to the pairing of the word blood with the moon, which seemed out of character, perhaps. <laughs> so anyway, this poem, the, the moon is speaking, blood moon. This pairing carries clout, a hint of treachery, but it's not me. Even at my most luminescent, I am one beside the others, an outcast among the constellations, even when, especially when full, but the fact that scientists, not poets, keep this coinage is endearing. Everyone loves a lunar eclipse, but isn't the main draw my diminishing? At best, I leave a blush behind, and the distance between blood and blush, vast as that from sky to earth. But for those of you below who rose from sleep on my behalf, I will honor your moniker, apt or not. Besides, your planet plays a part in this display of color, along with that day star that takes its light for granted. Were it not for all its rises and falls, the bending of its light, I would simply disappear into the dark, return to anonymity, being, in your terms, bloodless, drained, be in mind, pulled. Um, as I mentioned before, I've written poems, or actually, um, that I didn't mention before, but I um, have written poems about my mother and my grandmother and friends, and, um, and because women have always had my back in a way that um, not all men, but some men have not. Um, so this poem is called Mother Love. When my cat pooped upside down from the bluebird house and peered down into the opening, the mother bird out of nowhere swooped down and brushed his back with her wings. I recalled that spring night my mother, cloaked in her black lace mantilla, greeted me at the door, my sisters in tow, and bore us to the Colony House Motel because a bat was in the house. My sisters and I, blasé about the bat, reveled in spending a school night in the motel and having pecan waffles at the title house before school the next day. It turned out the bat had gotten out of the house and the exterminator had come for naught. Of course, the cat could not have entered the bluebird house anyway. It turned out the baby bluebirds were oblivious as my sisters and I to inherent harm. It turns out that my mother, young and glamorous, the envy of all my friends, now in her 80s, lies with her head in my lap, nested, chin raised, exposing whiskers. She asks and trusts me to tweet. I brush my wings across her face. This is a poem, not a news report. Um, the next poem turned out to be about myself as a mother to my dog, Katie, whom I lost three, days, three years ago, this May 14th. And I still miss her. When I started the poem, I thought it was going to just be about a soon-to-be Mother Robin, and it's called Vigil. Mama Robin has been on her nest on the rafter for days, still as a stone, impossibly patient. I worry that she doesn't eat, wonder who provides her with nourishment. I hope the bird facing her I saw at dusk with her mate with food in his beak. I just read that she leaves the nest in the morning for five to ten minutes to feed on earthworms so her body can handle the demands of laying an egg, not to mention incubation. 
Once hatched, the nestlings get fed by both parents up to 40 times a day. Such rigorous parenting. I have no children nor mates, but my dachshund, who died 34 days ago, feels like a daughter lost, even though she was old, 10, when I got her. Still, the space beside me where she slept and where she died hasn't shrunk, and the hours I fed her stay irrelevant, and the food that drops to the floor stays untouched, and the house when I return stays empty, wicked. The next poem is an ekphrastic poem, which is an ugly name of poems written mostly about art. And the object in my poem is my grandmother's cloisonne stamp box that sat on her desk outside the kitchen of the Roots, which is the name of her summer house that I loved and spent whole summers at. I inherited both the desk and the stamp box, both of which I treasure because they belong to her. Cloisonne stamp box. Tiny reliquary with those obsolete, single, lickable stamps my grandmother would slide up the brass incline inside. Cloisonne adorns the now dull brass boxes, top, sides, and front. Turquoise backgrounds bursting with raised lacquered fruit, flowers, bugs, and leaves that sometimes dwarf the other life forms, but all attached to wire tendrils that emanate and delight. I still just love to open it and feel the weight of the hinged lid when it falls shut, that hollow metal click, efficient as a resolution. Um, the next poem is a love poem to the roof, again, that, that my grandmother's house, which was a childhood haven and refuge that I miss along with her to this day. Um, and that is those cows at the roof. Below the bedroom windows, mornings you could hear them munching. Nights they would lie in the dark, their backs to us. Huge, convalescent lumps, breathing on the fields. In the dream I'm running, a suitcase bumping each hip, a ticket to the future fluttering from my mouth. I'm boarding the train when I turn to face whole herds of Holsteins gazing. Come back their eyes implore, and the dream ends. They resume the long walk back to the barn without me, as well they should. While built for birth and given milk, they are not particularly kind. Attachment unsettles them. Beyond bearing witness, they can't commit to much. In evenings, they must still stroll to the barbed wire fence, stand by the pine with a yellow jacket's nest, and stare and chew. When they walk, their bodies make a swishing sound, each step deliberate with one freight car knocking another. And um, the next poem, um, I, I, I think I mentioned that often um, I write about nature. Um, probably most of my poems are about nature, um, um, beings in nature that all me, um, and this poem um, is about a spider, which we all know is much maligned, um, but this poem is called Filigree. Seeing her backlit like that almost seems illicit. The caught beetle, recalcitrant and twice her size, her web the largest I have seen, a grid of filaments that shimmer on the window screen. 
and then dismantled. In the morning, no such suspension, though a leaf shard hangs, and from the porch, a glint of cable stretches toward a tree. In the corners of the house, more transfiguration, mosquito web, moth wings. And um, the last poem I'd like to read is also to Allie's and Kathy's and my dear friend and mentor, A.V. Christie. Um, as Allie said, we lost her uh, some years ago, and, and um, I still miss her dearly. Um, and this poem is called Roar for A.V. Every April, when the explosions of Forsythia occur, I will call the blast of my landlord's chainsaw, how, without any warning, he hacked down to nubs the forsythia that lit my deck. I wept from the shock of it, for the bell blossoms executed, for the leaves deprived of their nascent, for my own helplessness. April 7th, cancer took your life, but I keep hearing your laugh exploding in the dark of the movie theater. Singular and irrepressible, it landed on the ears of the staid viewers like an insult, like your vow to vitality. Thank you. Thank you. Kathy, your work is extremely powerful. It's real. It's real. Thank you. Yes, yes, very much so, very much so. Again, I want to thank you. All right. Thank you. The next poet. <laughs> all right, all right. The next poet is Kathleen Cohen. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, Michael. Hi, Michael. So, Thanks so much for hello. having us on the show. Yes. It's so good to hear your voice. I'd like to ask you the question that I've asked everyone. What is poetry? Well, I could add to um, what Allison and Kathy so wonderfully said. Um, for me, it's making an offering through words and voice. It's made of stories, images, memory, feelings, and messages. Um, since I'm a painter also, my poems often connect to kind of the ineffable, what painters are trying to do, I think, that is um, capture and share all the messy, challenging, and beautiful things that are hard to put words to. Wow, very nice. Again, the theme is Women's History Month. To you, what does it mean to be a woman poet? Thanks, Michael. Well, as an older woman poet, <laughs> and mm -hmm. my my. I, my poems are a way to share my voice and speak out. Um, in general, writing from women's perspective has always needed a wider audience. And my work lately is by and challenged by religious texts. I've been doing a lot of reading through my faith community, the Old Testament or the Torah. Um, I'm Jewish. Um, and, and the voices in the Torah um, the feminine voices are rarely fleshed out or even heard very much. So um, I write a lot in between the lines there. Um, and I also include my life experiences of many years 
um, in work and, and family and friendship, and hopefully I can communicate the love and wisdom of years as well. Please share your work. Thank you. And I, I dedicate this reading to, like Ali and, and Kath, to the late A.V. Christie, who was a mentor of us, and also a wonderful um, poet living now, Nat Anderson, Natalie Anderson. And also I dedicate it to my family and my wonderful grandchildren, Juliet, Gabrielle, Maddie, Asa, and Willa. So the first few poems are about the joy of painting. I'm a watercolor painter, so high-quality sheets of rag or cotton rag paper are a luxury. And that first poem I'm going to read you is called Paper. It's It's an old one from when our kids were young and lived with us. Paper. At dawn, I dive into a stack of arches, hot press, 180 pounds, $10 a piece, off-white sheets, folding, palms press, unbroken surface into a sharp spine. I center the ruler to keep pressure even while fibers give in. The best part is tearing, nubbly seams. A panel the span of my arms will accept landscape, even beg for it. I picture lemon fields a series of etchings, mud under the toes of swaggering women. Downstairs, growled. No cereal in this house. When will I drive them to school? I reach for the door, but the best part is stacking, leaf upon leaf of buttery space, laid out, still warm for my hands. This next poem is called Studio. Someone slants a light, unfurls red silk across a table. Cabbages, cracked mirrors, green onions in a bowl, gleam. We are rich, possessed of high windows, good light, and all this time. Outside, trucks gear and groan, but we are buffered by amber glaze. Everything emerges after brushwork and scraping. Interiors, baby dolls, my brother's face. We break on piles of rags and old brocades, jittery hands, coffee cups. It can get obsessive. Some labor all night and rouse to take up the brush. Some see God in this, harmonious lines, golden triangles. Some paint the same landscape day after day. I watch dust drift, tender gestures of a wrist, cerulean, carefully placed. Tonight our thighs will be blue volumes tangled in onion skin. I know that the other poets tonight are all going to read about their mothers, and so I have a poem too. My mother, um, Connie Kruger, was a very beautiful woman. This poem is called Double Portraits. My friend strokes layers of amber to scaffold my cheekbones. Tracing first impressions, he trusts his eyes will perceive what's essential. After 20 minutes, we switch. He takes the model chair, and I try to delineate his enclosed world. All afternoon, we 
exchange places, painter to model, model to painter. Our mentor is Bonard, who sketched sensation first, then followed color's logic. Bright strokes flick across surfaces, dark notes also. My friend's shirt begins to resemble a monk's cowl. I give him too much forehead. Who has entered this room? He renders me poised to jump off the canvas. I stare into winter. My mother has been in hospice for weeks. Her eyes glint from my face. How did he see this? This next poem is called Two Artists. I am lucky that my my family is very artistic, and so my grandchildren like to paint and draw and create. So two artists. My granddaughter sketches us waving elegant brush-like fingers under a cobalt fantasy sky. It's free of turbulence. Her stylized sun sends hard-edged rays over a lime green landscape where we stand, almost identical, although I'm taller. She draws us both in long red dresses with lemon hair, although mine, in reality, is graying. Her box of markers is limited. No complex hues from the natural world, but next time I'll bring more. At this stage, she's fascinated by full-on versus profile perspectives. Laboring over noses at odd angles, she draws two breaths on the right side of our bodies. It's very cubist, or like a cave painting, I say. You descend from a long line of stylists. She can scratch, scribble, invent whatever she wants even when she ultimately tears it up, alarmed when our heads migrate too far from our bodies. There are no mistakes in art, she declares, as I place more paper before her. This next poem is called, There Are Signs. My grandson colors the sky gray with streaks of violet. One by one, he fingers hues named for old master's pigments sepia, raw sienna, burnt umber, earth tones once ground, suspended in linseed oil, but now mostly chemical. Crayola has upped its game, evoking wonders. Lavender, cornflower, thistle, desert sand, deep space sparkle. Anyone can get lost in this waxy box, in all this language but my grandson stays intent on what he can see and translate. The sky is not gem-toned, not sapphire or amethyst. No, it's fog or smog blown in from the Midwest's countless flares in the dry tinder of our forests. I fear so much. One fear, will the colors in my grandson's box continue to be labeled for brilliant sky names like cobalt and cerulean blue or fire, conflagration, orange flame. The next few poems um, are from my experience as a poetry teacher. I've been lucky for more than 20 years 
through um, the We the Proets Project at Artwell, which is a wonderful nonprofit um, education um, organization that brings poetry and art workshops to underserved kids. Um, I've been lucky to work with them for many years, and it's even brought me abroad. So I spend a lot of time teaching a diverse group students in the Middle East, um, Jewish kids, Muslim kids, Bedouin kids, mixed classrooms of different communities. So this is from that time. This pope's called Outsider. Will she accept me, outsider, new teacher? I would offer a hand, but wait to receive her stiff smile. Like branches, we tremble. Her scarves twirl and unfurl. As if on cue, we lean to enfold each other. Two still women on the bright lawn among cypresses. I brought a book for the children. She holds out a plate of figs. The air exhales in various languages, embracing us. Samir writes of ascending fire clouds, something he saw or dreamed. We pause to think of it. The first day hangs heavy. August trails us into the school, sky-streaked azure. We write poems retracing days. The children gaze, wrapped as I weave among them, not wearing a hijab, as their teacher does, sentry at her desk. Yet she laughs at what jumps from their pens, cotton clouds, slices of green, words like sweets. So I had some wonderful times teaching in a high school of the sciences for Bedouin children outside of Beersheba in the Negev Desert. And in Arabic, they pronounce it Beersabah. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it well, but... But the poem is called Writing Poems in Be'er Sabah. Mahmoud's name contains two mountains. Modaifa's heart holds his brother and his horse. I stare at limestone roads which gird this city. His horse? Nothing alters on him, not a smile, not a flicker. He lives far out, and what do I know of all he knows? The color of his horse? How he fares in thick rains that pound the desert or dust that streams in from Africa, choking blue from the sky? Does he finish his homework by flashlight, walk kilometers to the bus? February heat blows through windows. Students fill the space. They want to learn English, and I yearn to sip this vastness to touch Modice's horse and learn why Amin was named for patience and Allah for prayer. I want to sniff the exact bloom Yasmin was named for. And this poem is called Lakia, which is the name of a small Bedouin city in the Negev. Salim and Nardine prepare a feast, a gleaming table. Their sons waver among us for moments, then slip to the sand beneath our chairs. The boys ignore our sighs over squash and sweet lamb. Toy trucks shift gears over rugs on the road to Bersaba. Wheeling outside on bikes, they widen the circle past camels and prickle bush. 
I strain to hear stories. Six cousins to a dorm room sharing the village's one suite, one suit. That first year, Bedouin were allowed to enter classrooms. We savor fresh baked flan, green apricots, baklava. Night is fragrant with jasmine. Salim snaps sprigs of verbena and lemon leaf, herbs he brews each day at school. He wants me to learn their names and healing properties, which I won't recall. Intent as I am on pulsing stars, the sweep of night birds, and the shouts of his sons who race beyond this garden. I have two more poems. This one's called Sleep for my grandchildren. Shrieking, they scamper, part chipmunk, part squirrel. They climb to the top of the slide, then waver. I gasp, but they seek this moment, this danger. Balanced for one supreme moment, they barrel down. Fierce children who whirl in light in cooling weather. I labor to breathe through many porous layers. Once I climbed bleachers on a day this bright with my father, entranced by drumbeat, sport, colored flags. Whooping and cheering, we jumped, sparked. I pressed against my father and shivered. The air is that shivery now, and who can I tell? Not my sweet grandchildren racing away in their necessary leaping. Well, this last one is about a suburban fox that has appeared and reappeared over the years, I think, or perhaps descendants of the original fox. And I call this poem Flame. Window to window, I track her calligraphy, longing to stroke where her edges disappear. In the, in the hedges, flame tail, plumed foxtail, thick for winter. Inside to outside, I seesaw, spirits spinning, glass between us. Oh, to paint her nesting in the sandbox, unruffled by car horn, leaf crunch, dogs baying. Bounding to a berm, she poses queenly, notes the breeze, the branches. Light shifts in the house where I'm at watch. And the moment I take up my camera, she's gone. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm in awe. Thank you. Your work is wonderful and extremely accessible. I want to thank you again. Our next poet, our next poet is Christina E. Johnson. Hello, Christina. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm I'm quite well. (laughs) I'm enjoying the program. I'm enjoying the program. I have a couple of questions, as you know. The very first one is, what is poetry? Poetry. Poetry is a space that I've created to express our lives, our experiences, and our stories. It's a way to give voice to the multitude of feelings, emotions, and thoughts that roam around in our heads. 
Using it as a writing tool, you can release the thoughts in rhyme or not, but almost always to seek reason. What does it mean to be a woman poet? I had to think about this one. I, too, am one of those older women, so keep seeking wisdom. But what I realized is that I came to poetry very early. I was five years old, and I was introduced to Langston Hughes, who, needless to say, is one of my favorite uh, poets. Um, but I read something today that I just real brief. It says it was from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, one of her characters in Aurora Lee. Therefore, this same world uncomprehended by you must remain uninfluenced by you. Women are, excuse me, women as you are, mere women, personal and passionate. You give us doting mothers and chaste wives, sublime Madonnas and enduring saints. We get no Christ from you, and verily, we shall get, we shall not get a poet in my mind. And what I realized is in reacting to that, I could also hear as a child, be seen and not heard. But I had a father who said, speak up, I can't hear you. And so being a woman and in our culture is to be seen and to be heard and to make sure that we help each generation of women do that. Please share your work. Thank you. This first one that I'm going to read is sometimes I go through things that, you know, we all deal with our relationships, whether it's lovers, family, friends, and a lot of my work is based on this. So this first one comes from that. To husbands, fathers, sons, brothers, friends, and lovers from wives, mothers, daughters, and sisters who don't know how to lean because they got to stay strong and deal with their silent screams. Did you hear me? Did you? Of course not, because the silent screams were bottled up inside. Oh, but I wanted you to hear me cry. I wanted to wanted you to reach out and touch me when the pain began to suffocate and stifle my very being. I wanted you to speak a soft, encouraging word to help me keep on going. No, you didn't hear me because the silent screams were bottled up inside. Nobody taught me how and when to lean on another. I don't need a dependent, clinging type of leaning, but when in weakness, after the burst of strength to share the burden kind of meaning, to release those springs in the still of night, letting you know I was falling apart. And now I'm trying to cope. But Grandma and Mama never taught me how to lean. They were so busy being strong, surviving, that I never thought, I thought that this was the only way to be. Never knew any other way. But Grandma and Mama are gone now, and I don't have nobody to help me be strong. Do you hear me? Do you? 
no, you don't hear me, because the silent screams stay bottled up inside. The next one is called repressed feelings, and I think many times we as women hide things within ourselves. So, no need to express feelings. No one cares. I fought to hide them. Now I'm fighting to revive them. Servicing almost unrecognizable all these years hidden in the corner of my heart. Finally, tragedy, the magic key, opened the floodgates and overwhelmed me. Thank God there is more to me than others were allowed to see. This next one is untitled, but it's about what is the the course of life and how we get from one place to the other. Life, my life, feels like a series of wonderless templates placed upon the grain which fabricates the soul. I assess the wandering nature of humankind that spontaneously sprung me from place to place without a focal point or goal. Now seeking to resolve and structure those conflicting moments of clarity, I find myself steadily stayed on the course of another's fruitful island. With covetousness, I seek to treasure the calm that appears to come easily to those who have planned. However, until now, making the shift from wanderer to planner has not come without a struggle. Struggle worth its weight in gold is seized, strangled, and left for dead. Only then can I go on to spiral into the mind's eye of the wind. And this is a mother poem. My mother and I didn't always have the best of relationships, but I think that each, all of us as women finally have to come to terms with our relationships with our mothers before we can come into our own. So this one is called, Mother, I Hardly Knew You Until. I hardly knew you until you died and I stretched out to flex my muscles in this obstinate world, never more to be denied. Your presence guided me through the muck and mirror of my own uncertainties until assurance gathered hold over my infirmities. Mother, I hardly knew you until. My sister and my friend came into her own, and I saw you being modeled again and again. She challenged the reality and myths I had built. Oh, the memories of childhood atrocities that caused pain. I never understood why the harsh penalties of being your child. While others moved about so smoothly, we paid a price. Mother, I hardly knew you until. I had children who gave me great joy and caused me pain. Things really are the same and a variety on the theme. My children, me, and mine. Mother, I hardly knew you or understood you until. My marriage crumbled like Humpty Dumpty never to be put back together again. My perception of what could or should have been with men in relationships colored by what I wanted for you and dad. A child's ideal, viewing her parents' interactions and wanting them to be all in all, 
perfect. This was not to be. Mother, I hardly understood you until separation, isolation, divorce, wiser, more mature. I came to do a gift with you. No matter, now I see you in me. When I want to be different, you are the model I remember and emulate. Mother, I hardly knew you until I came to accept you for who you were. Not that I wanted to you to not who I wanted you to be. Now I know both you and me better than I ever imagined. Thank you, Mama, for allowing me a glimpse into your world and being a force with which I had to reckon before coming into my own. Some of these other ones are going to be about relationships, friendships, lovers, friends. <laughs> this one is called the essence of you. But for a few minutes you touched my life, and yet it feels as though I have known you always. Was five minutes enough to make a difference? When an eternity has made more impact than our brief time together? Consider the reality of time standing still and everything about us being stirred into a pot of truth bigger than either of us. Individually, our lives go on meshed into the world, but I will never be the same because you touched me with the essence of you. Untitled number two. Monumental tasks to overcome damaged emotions unwilling or unable to surrender and afraid to risk, seeking and fearing what I will find. Suddenly, one night, overwhelming feelings of consequential dread flooded my being. The gates opened, tears flowed. There I sat, stunned into a realistic viewing of who I am, me. Untitled number one. Instinctively, I withdrew, wings so deep I felt I could not handle the pain. Father, heal the memories of these things buried so deep, which I refuse to let seep into my conscious being. As I pray this prayer, help me sift and sort the garbage that I have bagged throughout the years. Your grace and mercy define my crawling. Bring me through till I can walk again. This next one is one that I truly felt it was the day I lost my mind. And in, in doing it, it's, it's, it's funny because I came home and I couldn't walk the next day. So the day I lost my mind, exercise, exercise, exercise a pressing issue, what to do. An advertisement appeared, a hip-hop class, a call to sign up. The anxiously awaited dance class finally began. A slow warm-up flowed into an abundance of energy exerted just to keep up. Movement flowed, arms and legs crashing against the floor, bumping into others, sailing through the routines, feeling good about my progress, the oldest in the room. Moving, grunting, and groaning to the upbeat music, hips swaying, arms flailing, 
moving at a pace as never before. Yes, I can. Yes, I did. Satisfied with what was achieved. Exercise. The next morning, the body unable or unwilling to get out of bed. What were you thinking? No, you weren't thinking. The day I signed up was the day I lost my mind. Well, now my mind is back. Never again. The next couple of poems are also extracted poems, uh, one based on my, some of my own art, because I am a visual artist, a cyber artist quilter, and so I, the next four are going to be based on three other people's works, actually, and I'm sorry, but I f- forgot to write the name of the woman down, and Kathy may know when I talk about the yellow doors. The yellow doors, bright, seducing warmth calls out, come in, sit a spell. The yellow doors welcome me as I awake my friend. I hesitate to enter as a breeze moves the tree-lined street leaves. I welcome the breeze that gently caresses my face. I taste the metallic air of cars gone by, traveling to who knows where. My eyes soak in the brilliant colors. The buildings vibrate. I am moored to this spot, too overwhelmed to move towards the other yellow doors. The yellow doors welcome and invite me in. They and my friend must wait as I simply stay put and soak it all. Ona Judge was a quilt that I made for an exhibit uh, that was in the uh, institution center. Ona Judge. George Washington's spinstress slave. Her face solemn, she watches, looking beyond the window where the wind has tossed aside the curtain. She sees the road to be traveled, ready, ready to move to a new home, her own home, a home without the hustle bustle of owners, owners who bark orders, owners who do not pay. Owners that demand hours of hard, menial work, the work she enjoys and will do when she is free. Free to come and go, free to charge so she might live. There is luxury as she is dressed for success. She knows what she wants, and the bird has sung. Dean is based on a poem of Phyllis's work called Morning Zoom. Here before the screen, another morning shot. Who are these faces peering back at me? Behind each book, a plant, a photo, a piece of art, shouting, shouting out to be seen. No, not heard, just seen. Twelve faces with bated breath, awaiting news. News not yet ready to be heard. Pay attention, it's coming. And the last one was a question we were asked about was sort of my response. The space surrounds me. My thoughts of God are not separate, for he is within me and I in him. My heart chooses to follow the trappings of this cold, at times unfeeling world. I know I will come back to the true knowledge of what fills my life with pain and sorrow, joy and hope. For now, I am safely encircled in his loving arms. His wisdom fills my mind. 
His will I do with my creative art and follow humbly to that space, that space that transforms me, mine, you, yours. And my last piece is a piece that I actually wrote for a friend who was really going through a lot of problems at the time, and she too felt that we as black, strong women are not supposed to cry, that this was my poem for her. Weep, my sister. Weep, my sister, weep. For out of the bowels of despair shall come your joy. Will I hold you while you shed tears, which healing, which heal ailing souls? No questions, no doubt. I commit to thee compassion, a sincere desire and willingness to cherish and nurture you while in pain and to share me when the need arises. May I be ever mindful to acknowledge our kinship and sisterhood and be the kind of friend you need. We will hold you, sister, while you weep. Thank you so much. Thank you. Your work is beautiful. I could feel it. Thank you. You know, all of you had an opportunity to share your work. Yeah. I did not share that this group works together in a poetry group. And you're all seasoned. What, with decades of life experience, and all of you are still quite active as artists, writers, and teachers, how does being an elder influence your poetry and what you have to say? I'll ask Kathleen. She needed. Okay, thank you. So for me, um, it's it's about the next generations too. So I'm very concerned about you know the children to come, and so I write about those topics, and I write much more about what I see in the world around us, um, but also offering um, kind of life experience um, poems that that share the that. So I'm much more outward focused, I think, than I used to be when I when I first started writing. All right, thank you very very much, Allison. And you, it's risky. Okay, yes, I can hear you now. It's risky okay. to be vulnerable as an elder. What is important for you to say through your work? Oh. Uh, what is it important for me to say through my work? Um, well, I think part of it is, you know, as we age, you know, we have the opportunity to look back and see, you know, when when we're young, um, we're very um, engaged in the world that we're in, but we don't have a lot of vision. Um, and so I think that um, that I think that having a longer life has its pros and its cons. I mean, I won't say it doesn't have its cons, but but it does give you um, perspective. I mean, I think the other thing is because I'm a therapist and I work with people, I'm always looking for a way to 
frame what we're going through now in a bigger perspective to help us walk through times that are really kind of tough and to get to the other side of it. Um, and I think uh, living my life with my heart stuff, I think, has given me that perspective, too, that I don't have forever, but while I'm here, I have some things that, are, uh, that I want to do and things that I want to give to people. And I do want to be around as long as possible for I, too, have these lovely grandchildren and um, my sons. And so uh, I think that there's a lot for us to give the world even as we age. Although I remember when I was young, Michael, you know, we had that expression, uh, you know, never trust anyone over 30. So, uh, you know, I think about that in hindsight and think, really, what was I thinking? So some of it, some of it is perspective, but you can't get it till you get there. So, you know, um, those are some first thoughts of something I hadn't really thought about much. But thanks for asking. Yes, so important. And my next question is for Kathy as well as Christina. The question is, how do you express the female voice and its power? We'll start with Kathy. Hello, Kathy. <laughs> yes. Um, could you, I'm sorry, could you ask this question again? I don't think I covered it. All right. How do you express yourself as a female with a female voice and its power? Hmm. Well, you know, you hear about poetic license, <laughs> and um, you know, I think the genre of poetry um, allows me. Well, partly I feel more powerful when I'm writing poetry because it's my genre of choice, but. Um, I do feel like I find out what thinking, feeling, um, who writing. Like, I, I usually don't know what my poem's going to be about until it gets there. And so just sitting down to the table, um, writing itself is a, is a means of um, making me feel more powerful often than when I'm speaking or talking to somebody. Um, you know, writing... It's, it's kind of a lonely, solitary act, but it, it makes me feel powerful. And obviously the best um, outcome is when you write something that someone else wants to hear. But um, I, I find that I derive a lot of um, confidence. Um, I'm more centered when I'm writing. And, and being centered makes me feel um, more powerful than when I'm not centered. I enjoyed hearing you speak. All right. <laughs> Christina, Christina, the same question. Interesting. As you as I heard the question, the words two words came to me. Vulnerability and confidence. And sometimes if I find that I can get my confidence mixed with my vulnerability, I can allow the power of what my voice wants to say. Not sure if that makes sense, but... (laughs) (laughs) It was eloquent. (laughs) (laughs) 
you <laughs> because because you know I'm coming back to poetry through my 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 art, other art forms, and in doing that, even as Kathy asked me to be here tonight, what I realized is how vulnerable I was going to feel. But by not speaking, you don't allow your power to come at all. So. Mm-hmm. Wow, very, very nice. Very, very nice. Very nice. Thank you so much. How does knowing each other and working together influence your poetry? To anyone. You're all on air. Kathy pushes me very hard and makes me not say no. (laughs) (laughs) I I stand both. Actually, there's. Uh, there's, you know, Kathy Barham and Allison and I, we've been studying together, but Christina and I were studying together separately, and I introduced her to the group, so I get to span all these wonderful people. So uh, definitely inspire and trust and feeling safe um, for me and, and, and knowing that we all appreciate each other, very respectful. It's not competitive at all. It's really lifting each other up and um that's rare. You don't always get that, you know, in workshop mm-hmm. groups. Um, or, but we have that. Uh, you know, these are all fine people. So <laughs> I will tell you. All right. Very nice. Very nice. You know, we live in a difficult world. So much is happening. So much is happening. What does it mean to be a poet in modern day society? Anyone can share. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I, um, I'm happy to see that poets are not necessarily the lowest <laughs> on the totem pole. Um, we used to be sort of mocked by other people writing in other genres. But I like to remember the times when poets were bards and, you know, sages. Um, but I think because more people are writing poetry, I find that very affirming. Um, and mm-hmm. All right. Like Anyone else? Yes. You know, I was going to say, um, can you hear me or no? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I can hear you. Okay. All right, great. Uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is what's really kind of exciting, truthfully, is, you know, I was looking up the Poet Laureate before today to see mm-hmm. – um, you know, the history of who's been a poet laureate. And over the last 52 poet laureates, I think 38 have been um, men and 13 have been women. But what's really kind of cool is that the last two poet laureates in a row have been women. And they've um, the, the one before last was Tracy K. Smith. So we have an African-American woman poet. And then now we have um, Joy Harjo, so we have a Native American woman poet who also plays the saxophone. So I think that in some ways um, things are changing and women's voices are growing uh, deeper and stronger. And it's also a very exciting time for me to see all the young poets are really experimenting. Um, so even though it's a very difficult time, I think people are singing about it and speaking about it and speaking their truth about it. So for me, it's a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I, I, That's very nice. I agree. 
Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Um, I just recently participated in a, a quilt show, and a young man wrote um, the seven last words of the unarmed. And the choir with the singing city of Philadelphia actually premiered a poem written by Cindy Brown, who was our youth poet laureate here in Philadelphia, and the music was written by a young man who was 24 years old. So when I can, wow. you know, when I see young people like that coming along and doing the same kind of work, you know, there's hope. You know, that's what I feel mm-hmm. is the hope. Yeah. Also, yeah, I'll um, jump on that too because Artwell, we've taught thousands of children poetry workshops. Mm -hmm. We've we've had two youth poet laureates come out of our group and many published poets now, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids, you know, finding their voice and their power through poetry. Just to pull a plug in for Artwell. Very nice. You know, as I said, I did not say that this group worked together. I wanted each person, each poet, to establish her own viewpoint. So the very last thing before we close, what did you learn about yourself tonight? What did you learn from somebody else? Who would like to share? Um. Your question was, what did I learn about myself tonight from someone else? From yourself or someone else. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to go back and use Barack Obama's words. Yes, I did Mm. and yes, I can. All right. All right. (laughs) Okay, someone else. I'll jump in. Um, I was very nervous about this and um I find I found I felt bolstered by um by Allison going first and then I felt very um and, and it was so cool that, that we all read poems about our mothers. Um yes. I also just as far as what I learned about myself, I um I think once I started reading, my fears just kind of, I didn't feel so fearful. Um, It was more empowering than fear-producing. And I thank you, Michael, for giving me the opportunity to find that out. (laughs) Wow. Thank you. Anyone else before we close? Um, What what can I say? Um, I could say (laughs) how hard, I could say how hard it is for me to read. and so it's a big deal when I, I do readings, but usually I do them with my friends. So that, that helps me enormously. Um, and Kathy Cohn's sort of been plugging me along for years now. So um, I, I thank her for pushing me um, because I was, um, I sort of always was a very, very, very quiet person. So it's, it's not that I can't talk. You can see I can certainly talk when you get me going, but, but it's always been sort of, I've been quiet. So, I think it's been great for me to read. Um, I've put a lot of thought and time into organizing and reorganizing and reorganizing and throwing things out and saying yes and no. So it gave me time to think about how to do a reading, how it, um, in terms of what other people might like to hear and how to pace it, um, because I don't mm-hmm. do it that often. So I learned a lot about 
you know, doing this project, um, even though it was hard, it was also fine. And so yeah. it shows me that anybody can do something, even if they think they can, can't, yeah. if they put their mind to it and are willing to um, step out of their comfort zone a little bit. Um, so that I learned that over and over again each time I do these things that are difficult and take a risk. You know, this has been a wonderful reading to be part of, to listen to everybody else, because in some ways we're all a big gestalt together here of women, and we have something to offer which is larger than each one of us by ourselves. So those are the mm. things I take away from this. All right. I like that. I like that a yeah, lot. Yeah, we thank you. And we thank you, Michael, for being such a yes. gracious host. Yeah, you know, having 15 minutes for each of us, I think, helps us really distill and think, like what Al said, you know, what, what is it we really want to focus on and present, you know, in a short time, um, what's essential to us. And, and, uh, and as a group, it, we're stronger. So, well, thank you. <laughs> yes. Thank, thank you, Michael. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I want to I want to thank all of you because we're finishing on time, <laughs> and it's been a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful experience. I've learned a lot, and I'm going to say what I learned about myself because I asked that question of you. I've learned that it's so important to listen to other people, to truly listen, mm-hmm. to listen with my heart to what people are saying. Because when you talked about your mother, that really touched me. Mm. So I had to listen to hear every single word in terms of what you shared. Because it was so special. You all write incredibly well. Incredibly well. And I'm just pleased that you would take time out to be with me. For 90 minutes, <laughs> and we're finishing on time. <laughs> I want to thank you. I want to thank you. I want to thank our listening audience. It's been a wonderful program. These individuals share their viewpoints. And as I share every week, let poetry ring somewhere in the world. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. All right. Thank you so much. All right. All right. You're incredible. Good night.